a new agey Muslim journalist, those things can apparently go together. A new agey Muslim journalist asked recently in the Gulf News this question, why do we live as if we've been promised immortality? She meant by the ways that we exaggerate the little things in life, things that don't ultimately matter. You know, pressure to have a perfect life, to have the dream house, worry over your children, worry about growing old. We're too hard on ourselves, she said. And then life comes to an end. She was grappling with a friend of hers who was suffering through the final stages of cancer. She was not there, although her body, wrecked by cancer, was propped up on several pillows on her specially ordered from Turkey remote-controlled velvet-covered patient bed. It was sobering for this journalist, apparently. Her condition took me by the shoulders and shook me so hard I felt a jolt run through my mind and body. And taking all of this in, here was her observation. We live as if we were created with a certainty of eternity. And I think she's on to something. We were made to be fulfilled. No, we were designed with a sense of significance, a sense that life reaches beyond this present existence, and so we recoil at even the thought of death, much less the sight of it. Her diagnosis was correct. It was her solution that was off. Her prescription, in view of the human condition that plagues every one of us in this room, her prescription was this, to be aware of every little good in my life, health being the most important one. Nothing is more important than being alive. Healthy in body, healthy in mind, everything else is mere details. Life is today, this moment, now. Live. And for all of this journalist's good intentions, her solution just rings hollow. It's not even close to being satisfying or sufficient because in the end, people still die. All of our projects, all of our dreams, all of our ambitions, our most cherished relationships come to a screeching halt or they eventually peter out. And honest, secular people admit this in a way that she did not. They admit that New Agey remedies don't finally satisfy. One famous filmmaker said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. And I think that's true for every one of us here. I mean, whether you are from a Muslim background or uh, you're a secular humanist or you're a Hindu or whatever you might be, all of us face the same human condition. God made us with eternity in view. When it comes to the Christian hope, the one that we are standing on and proclaiming this morning, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important question is this. Did it happen?
In other words, is it true? Or is the resurrection of Jesus that we have assembled this morning to celebrate, is that just one more religious symbol and one more religious fable? Jay Anderson said, Easter's message is either the supreme fact in history or it is a gigantic hoax. And there's no alternative. Uh, many people might concede, well, the resurrection is a beautiful story. I think there's some spiritual meaning to it. But says Anderson, either the resurrection is infinitely more than a beautiful story or else it is infinitely less. Well, this morning, we're going to consider the evidence, the evidence from the eyewitnesses themselves, the people who are actually there, John, Mary, the disciples, Thomas. And then we'll consider what it means for us. So let's consider those eyewitnesses. First, as we turn to John chapter 20, John chapter 20. First, let's look at this through the lens of John. John, who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. We're in John chapter 20, verse 1. John chapter 20. Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. If the disciples had been expecting a resurrection, we might be more skeptical of their claims. But one thing is unmistakably clear from Mary Magdalene. A resurrection was the farthest thing from her mind. I mean, did you notice that here? She thought the body had been not raised, but relocated, perhaps by a gardener or a grave robber. And grave robbery was such a nuisance that within decades of this event, the Roman Emperor Claudius actually declared it to be a capital offense. Mary assumed that the body had been removed. As she said in verse 2, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, whatever happened, they were alarmed by the indignity of it all. 
I mean, after crucifying their master, now his remains were being disturbed. So Peter and John ran to the tomb. In his gospel, the fourth gospel, John, the author, refers to himself, as I said, as the beloved disciple. Well, John outran Peter, and he peered inside. Then Peter, always the brash one, he just went straight into the tomb, contracting ceremonial uncleanness, no matter. Whatever was in there was obviously significant because notice what John does. He takes out the zoom lens camera and he focuses in for us. Look at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Something in that grave convinced John that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But what was it? It was more than the absence of Jesus' body. It was the presence of these grave clothes. Well, for one thing, they were still there, and the body was not there. Now, grave robbers would have taken the linens, and especially the expensive spices, and left the body. Well, this also ruled out the possibility that somebody had just moved the, the body to another tomb for some reason. Jesus' body had not been removed. Rather, it seems, it had passed through the grave clothes, leaving them intact but empty. It passed through them. Not like Lazarus, whom Jesus had previously raised from the dead. You can read of that in chapter 11. Lazarus came out of the tomb, and John tells us it was with his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face, but not Jesus. His was a resurrection to a new sphere of existence. It was not merely a bodily resuscitation. John Stott explains the grave clothes. They had been neither touched nor folded nor manipulated by any human being. They were like a discarded cocoon from which the butterfly has emerged. This is what John saw. And what effect did it have on him? Well, it says he saw and believed. There was no other explanation. Of course, John hadn't yet fully processed the full significance of the resurrection. This would only come later. That's verse 9, where it says, As yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again. But they should have understood, because there were suggestions and hints in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, like Psalm 16, which says of the Messiah, referring to his triumph from the dead, says, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, that psalm is what Peter would be preaching only weeks away, but for now, all the pieces were not yet in place. For now, John only knew one thing. Jesus had been raised bodily. 
from the dead. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you are a skeptic, I really wonder, and I'd love to talk to you afterward, I'll be standing at the door, I wonder what you, what you make of this, like how you deal with this. Now, most everyone agrees that the, t- the tomb was empty. It was definitely empty, or else how did the Jesus movement get started in the first place? Some say maybe the body was taken, but taken by whom? By the disciples? Is that likely that the same disciples who had deserted and denied their leader while he was living would only a few days later be boldly proclaiming the resurrection in front of the same authorities who had crucified him all for a hoax? Or maybe the Jews took the body. Within a few weeks, thousands of Jews were converting to Christ. The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem was opposing it with all of their might. They could have just produced the body and immediately put an end to the fledgling movement. John Stott said, the authorities' silence is as eloquent a proof of the resurrection as the apostles' witness. Friends, the best conclusion seems to be that of John. The body of Jesus was not removed by men. It was raised by God. And here's the thing, this was all very public knowledge. Jerusalem, remember, was a compact, crowded city, especially during the time of Passover when the population swelled by fivefold or tenfold. The trial of Jesus, the crucifixion, the burial, these were well-known facts. This was very public. A few years later, Paul would testify before King Agrippa, I'm convinced none of this has escaped your notice because it was not done in a corner. And perhaps this explains why no one, not even the Jews, denied that the tomb was empty. They explained it away, but they did not deny it. And yet within days, hundreds, thousands of Jews were claiming that they did believe because not only was the tomb empty, but Jesus had now been seen publicly. Consider the second lens, the lens of Mary. So we've got the lens of John, second Mary. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Interesting that the place of Jesus' death was between two criminals. The place of his resurrection was between two angels. Mary, it seems, was less taken by the grave clothes than by these, these heavenly visitors. These men dressed in white. Matthew recounts that an angel with an appearance of lightning rolled back the stone and then sat on the stone, terrifying the guards. I mean, have you ever wonder, wondered why 
the angel rolled the stone back in the first place? It surely wasn't so Jesus could get out. It was so that the witnesses could get, get in. It's as though the angel was displaying the evidence. Jesus is risen. Come on in and see. So they were perplexed by Mary's behavior on such a triumphant day as this. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Well, it's because Mary was the one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Jesus had delivered this woman, but now she was shattered by the crucifixion of her master. She had witnessed the horror of it, and now the indignity of what happened to his body. Mary's hopes, along with all the other hopes of Jesus' friends, had been utterly dashed. The last thing in the world this woman was expecting was a bodily resurrection. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. Notice in that sentence the depth of her devotion. Not only is this woman there to anoint his body for burial, but she even refers to his corpse as my Lord. And then she becomes aware of someone else. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but that she did not, she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Maybe she was blinded by her tears. Maybe that's why she mistook him for the gardener. Certainly in the other resurrection appearances, it's curious that um, something seemed to be different about the, the body and the visage of Jesus. He appeared different so that on one occasion with the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, it said he veiled himself. So it's hardly surprising that under these circumstances, when she was hardly looking for him, Mary didn't recognize Jesus. After all, what was she looking for? Well, that's what Jesus asked. The truth is, she was looking for a corpse. So Jesus is inviting her to expand her horizons, expand her understanding of who he is, not a dead religious leader. No, he's the resurrected Lord of history. That's who she's looking for. It was in the tragedy of this distraught woman's life that Jesus revealed himself. But notice how he did. Not by a visible sign, but by an audible voice. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. He called her name. And instantly she recognized him. As Jesus had said, my sheep listen to my voice. The shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You know, as you step back and consider this scene, it is an amazing thing that of all the possible things Jesus could have been doing in this moment, I mean, this is a pivotal turning point. No, it's the pivotal turning point in cosmic history. Of all the things he could have been doing, the first person to whom he showed himself alive 
was this weeping woman. It was the turning point of the ages. It was the beginning of the new creation. It was a time as solemn and as majestic as the first creation when God had spoken the world into creation. Light burst out of the chaos and darkness. Jesus was the pivotal figure, and he felt himself to be so. Gerhardus Voss asks, would it have been unnatural had he sought some quiet place to spend the opening hour of this new unexplored state in communion with the Father? Can there be any room in his mind for the humble ministry of consolation required of Mary? But get this, Voss says, but among all the voices that hailed his triumph, no voice appealed to him like this voice of weeping in the garden. And there you have both the meekness and the majesty of Jesus Christ. His exalted, transcendent greatness, and yet his condescending care for those who are needy and hurting. This is the Jesus we've gathered here to worship this morning. He is fully God and fully man. He still calls his sheep by name. He tenderly leads them out. So she heard his voice, and she was transformed, not gradually, but immediately. She recognized audible recognition. She turned from a mourner into a worshiper. Look at verse 17. Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, when Jesus said, don't cling to me, this doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that Jesus was still kind of materializing into his heavenly existence and she couldn't cling to him because he didn't have a true body yet. I used to think it meant that. No. In other resurrection appearances, it's clear that Jesus had a spiritual body, a physical body, and yet one that had supernatural ability to pass through things, whether grave clothes or locked doors. The point seems to be that now was not the time for Mary to be clinging on, holding on to Jesus, because he wasn't yet ascended to the Father. There was still urgent business at hand, which is why she needed to, get, to go and tell the disciples, which is exactly what she did. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that she had, he had said these things to her. And so this first century Jewish woman, Mary, was the first commissioned evangelist to the evangelists, the 11 disciples, bearing this triumphant news, I have seen the Lord. She was number one. By the way, if you were going to make up a story for first century Jews, would you make it so that your key witness to that event, to the resurrection of this man, was a weeping woman? When in that society, a woman's testimony was not even admitted in a court of law because women were considered to be inherently emotionally unreliable. These Gospels don't read so much like promotional literature. 
they read more like real life. And those disciples, well, these were the people who had failed Jesus. They had denied him, deserted him in his greatest hour of need. But how did Jesus refer to the disciples in verse 17? What does it say? Go to my brothers and say to them. He did not disown them. He loved them. He even expresses solidarity with them in saying, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Friends, is that fact alone not enormously comforting to us as a church? When we wander, He will bring us back. When we fall, He will pick us up. He will call us His brothers, His sisters. As He said in John 6, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Friends, Jesus is our brother, He is our friend, and He is our exalted Lord with a unique relationship with the Father, which is why you saw in verse 17, did you see how delicately he distinguishes the two fatherhoods of God in verse 17? I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. Not exactly the same. You see, Jesus is the Son by nature. You and I are sons by adoption. Jesus is the eternal divine Son who enjoyed fellowship with the Father and Spirit from eternity past. We are sons for Jesus' sake, only because of Him, only through Him. And so when Mary showed up, bearing this incredible news, and when she told them what, he, what she had heard, how did they respond? Did they respond with celebration, adulation, no, they thought it was nonsense. Luke tells us it seemed to them to be an idle tale. This was a hallucination from an overly emotional woman until they met Jesus later that evening. Consider the third lens, the disciples. Look through the lens of the disciples in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. They were confused. They were cowering. They were huddled together. Sad evidence of the unbelief that verse 19 says the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. This was no celebration party. This was more like a, a funeral. It was doom and defeat. And exactly how Jesus appeared, well, we don't know. Since the doors were locked, it seems he didn't knock. Hey guys, it's me. Open up. It seems he could pass through things. He just appeared. His resurrection body had changed. There was continuity with his old body, 
It looked different, but yet it was the same. Verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. This proved that this was the same one who had been crucified three days earlier. So these were his identifying marks. These were his credentials. Now, if you are not a Christian, at this point I would just want to ask you one question. Are you aware of any other religion with a God that has wounds? A God who suffers for his people? Does the God of Islam have that? Or the God of Buddhism? Or the secular humanist variety? Or the New Age spirituality God? One poem puts it like this, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone which is exactly what the prophet Isaiah had predicted 700 years before when he said, by his wounds we are healed. So Jesus' death was not an accident of history, it was predetermined, preordained. Not merely an example of how to love other people selflessly, this was a death that actually accomplished something. And what did he say from the cross in the previous chapter? He said, it is finished. And what was it that was finished? What was it that Jesus accomplished? Well, it's there in verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is what Jesus accomplished for the unworthy people in that room who only hours before had denied him and deserted him. Shalom. Peace. You see, by nature... All humans are in conflict with God. We are not naturally in a peaceful state with Him. You see, he, he made us in His image. He designed us to love Him and live for Him, but we've all lived for ourselves. We have been captivated by ourselves. The person we admire most is the one who looks back at us in the mirror. And as a result, we have demeaned God. We have belittled Him, and we have attracted the wrath of God who is holy and just and will not turn a blind eye to our sin. And so Jesus came to end the hostility. And the way he did was through his death on the cross in which he received the wrath of a holy God in the place of unworthy sinners who would turn and trust in him. He came as a substitute to deliver the lost. Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross, not only peace, but also you see here, purpose. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And in time, these were the same disciples who would go on to make disciples among all the nations. And what was their pattern? As the Father has sent me. Jesus left heaven the eternal Son of God, amid unsearchable riches and infinite honor, he left it all behind. He came into this world and endured suffering, indignity, poverty, mockery, all manner of pain and torment. The disciples were to do the same. 
They were to leave behind their comforts and go and make disciples among all the nations, preaching this same message, which is exactly what we see them doing in the book of Acts. Not that the disciples were to re-embody Christ's incarnation. It's not that they could repeat His atonement on the cross, but rather they would bear witness to what Jesus had done. And friends, we today are under the very same orders. As a congregation of His people in Dubai, we're under orders not to sit on the gospel, not to hide it, but to take it to the nations that have gathered here in Dubai. That's our fundamental ministry, to be goers, to be senders, and make disciples of them. This is why we as a congregation emphasize evangelism so much. This is why just an hour and a half ago we were downstairs in a class on worldviews and apologetics so that we could be better equipped to bear witness to this truth. This is why we pray for evangelism. This is why we give sacrificially to support missions causes because people outside of Christ will suffer eternal punishment. And therefore, if we love the world, what must we do? I mean, it's not that evangelism is easy. Quite the contrary. It's quite unpopular, actually. You know, Nepal criminalized conversion and evangelism. Here's what the law says. The, the Nepali law says, no one should convert a person from one religion to another religion or profess their own religion with such intention. If found guilty, there will be punishment of five years imprisonment and penalty of 50,000 rupees. If foreigners are found guilty, they will be deported within seven days after completing their imprisonment. If you bear witness to the gospel to your neighbors and to your friends, it will be costly. Relationally, maybe in other ways, it will be unpopular. You will face trouble, but guess what? Christ will be with you. Verse 22, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is inextricably linked with the mission. That's what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Jesus blowing on his disciples in that upper room was like an acted parable. It was a foreshadowing of the outpouring of the Spirit that would occur at Pentecost later. It was like at creation. At creation where it says the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So here, the breath of Jesus gives life for a new creation, propelling us forward with a new message. And people's eternal destiny would hinge on how they related to that message. That's verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. How do people respond to the apostles' teaching? Do they respond with repentance and faith? If so, they're forgiven. Do they reject it? Then they are not forgiven. They will die in their sins. It all hangs on your response to the good news. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has used this verse in order to justify a special priesthood with the power of absolution. And that means 
you confess your sins to a priest. And he pronounces forgiveness, and therefore, God forgives you. But that gets it all backwards, because we don't have the ability to forgive anyone. Only God can forgive. What this is saying is not that the apostles or we today have the inherent power to forgive anyone. It doesn't say if you forgive anyone his sins, they will be forgiven. No, what does it say? Look at it carefully. It says they are forgiven. So the apostles were merely ratifying a heavenly verdict, exercising the keys of the kingdom, which is what a congregation does whenever it admits people who, by all appearances, have responded positively to the gospel. We, too, admit people into our church. Well, this is how Jesus revealed himself to these disciples on the very first night. Now, he could have said to them in that room, shame on you. He might have said that. He might have said, I'm done with you. But he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. That's how Jesus is. These guys were not faith heroes. They were not waiting around for a resurrection. They were scared. They were heartbroken. They were behind locked doors. And by the way, if you were going to make up a new religion, would you construct it in such a way that the pillars of the original community, the leaders, the foundational leaders of the movement, look like this? Repeatedly just not getting it? Even abandoning Jesus in his hour of need? Friends, this doesn't read like marketing material. What was it that transformed these disciples from a scattered band of cowardly mourners into the spiritual conquerors of the world? J. Gresham Machen says, it was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was not the inspiration that came from past contact with him. It was the message. He is risen. There's no way around it. Something had happened to these individuals. But one of them was not there that night. And that brings us to the fourth and final lens. It's the lens of Thomas. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, he couldn't share in their joy because he didn't believe it. And in one sense, we can relate to him, can't we? Because we've never seen a dead man get up from the grave. Thomas needed irrefutable physical proof that this Jesus was the same one who had been crucified, dead, and buried. He was sincere at least, but here's the problem. Thomas had begun insisting on how he must be believe. He began making conditions with God. He must see the wounds. I mean, maybe you've met people like that before. I mean, if God wants to show himself to me, why doesn't he just make it manifestly clear? Just right up in the sky. Dear so-and-so, I am God. But faith doesn't work that way. To be sure, faith involves evidence. For example, 
the empty tomb itself, the extraordinary, credible eyewitness sightings, the early written accounts when there were still eyewitnesses around to refute them, the radical transformation of the disciples seemingly overnight, the sudden shift from Saturday to Sunday as the meeting day, which anthropologists will tell you is the very last thing to change in a culture, those deep-seated religious traditions. Why the change from Saturday to Sunday? Well, as I say, there are evidences, plenty of them. But all the evidence in the world won't produce faith. Faith involves personal trust. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Oh, Jesus had heard Thomas lay down his challenge, even though he wasn't there that day, at least physically present. And now the folly of Thomas came home to him. I mean, to think that he should have conducted a scientific examination of the wounds of the Messiah. Who was he to make demands of God for how or under what condition he would believe? Well, interestingly, we hear no more questions from Thomas. No more demands from Thomas. We only hear the confession, my Lord and my God. Jesus is uniquely divine, which is where John's gospel has been headed from the very beginning. You know, if you're not familiar with this book, you should go home this afternoon and just read the whole of it because notice how it begins in 1 verse 1. The introduction to John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And here in chapter 20, verse 28, the gospel reaches its climax, its zenith in Thomas's confession of Jesus as my Lord and my God, the eternal Son of the same essence with the Father, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth the one who voluntarily laid down his life on the cross as a sin offering, bearing the wrath of the triune God, punishment for wrongdoers and undeserving people like us, crucified, dead, buried. But now he's alive. And Jesus said to him, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, the time was coming when Jesus would no longer reveal himself visibly, physically, because he would be taken up into heaven. And so today, we who believe do so not because of our eyes, but because of our ears. The Apostle Paul said, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I'll never forget one conversation I had with a, a sweet Iranian believer. 
She often said she felt sad because Jesus had not appeared to her in a vision or a dream like so many people were saying they had experienced Jesus. And so she concluded he must not love her as much as them. But the New Testament expects that after a while Jesus would stop ascending because he would ascend into heaven. Now Peter saw Jesus, but when he wrote the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, his assumption was these believers in Asia Minor, some 30 years after the event, they had not seen Jesus because he said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, after Christ's ascension, faith must come through some other channel than physically seeing. But what is the channel? Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's interesting to us about Jesus' miracles that they were never a display of raw power. There was always something more. The miracles of Jesus were designed to shed light, to evoke wonder, and to point to something beyond themselves, which is why John refers to his miracles as signs. In fact, John is constructed, very artfully, around seven signs. The culminating sign being this one here. What were these signs designed to evoke? Well, it wasn't merely for our historical curiosity. And it wasn't even for our religious inspiration. The sign had a much more urgent focus, a much more personal one. It's so that you might believe. Just like John, just like Mary, just like all the disciples, just like Thomas. Look at the last verse. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You know, when that man Lazarus was raised from the dead, he brought the grave clothes out with him as one who would have occasion to use them again. Jesus, on the other hand, left His grave clothes behind. Why did He? Because His is the power of an indestructible life. He will no longer taste death for anyone. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's been seated at the right hand of God, raised to an entirely new plane of existence. As he says in Revelation chapter 1, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And since he was raised, we will be raised too. Here is why, brothers and sisters, here is why it matters for you and me. You see, we have a hope and a hope that can never fade, regardless of all the disappointments that we may face in this world. We don't have to greedily grab all of our happiness here in this life. We don't have to be desperate. We have eternity with Christ. Jesus promises, 
promises us a future of inexpressible joy. Joy that is so great that we can't even articulate it. It's called eternal life. And it begins now. It's the quality of life, of being in the presence of God, and ultimately into the supercharged experience of being immediately, visibly in the presence of God, in a new heaven, a restored universe, that's only described in Scripture as a river of delight, or some sort of banquet for the senses. Friends, this is why that New Agey Muslim version of hope is so utterly inadequate. Just being alive, healthy in body, healthy in mind, everything else is mere details. I mean, is that all they can offer? Is that the best that the Gulf News could put forward? Because in the end, people still die. They still face disappointment and disease. All of our projects, all of our dreams, all of our ambitions, our most cherished relationships come to a screeching halt or they just peter out over time. Think of it, the job that you hold today will one day be held by someone else. The family that you now enjoy will not always be with you. The pleasures of this world, sensual, entertainment, the approval of your peers, satisfaction of a job well done, these will one day fade. We need a hope that transcends this world, that goes beyond all that this world is offering, all the other competing alternatives. We need a hope that defeats death. Shakespeare's Hamlet called death the undiscovered country from whose journey no travelers return. In other words, we don't really know a lot about death because when people go there, they never come back to tell us about it. But in fact, Hamlet was wrong. There is one who came back. Let's pray. Lord, how marvelous you are to have given us this unshakable hope. We thank you, Lord, that you have equipped us with a reason for life that transcends all the suffering, all the opposition of this world, even our own sin. Christ has conquered over that too in such a way that even when we stumble, even when we fall, he will call us brothers and sisters. He will identify with us. Everyone who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. We pray, Lord, that you might be glorified as we follow Christ and worship you, the triune God. Even as we sing this closing song, seal these truths to our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand and sing, In Christ Alone. <laughs>